Let me add my sincere thanks to uh, everyone for your involvement in the great uh, celebration last weekend, our 80th anniversary and the dedication of our building. There was just so much work that went into that, and you all pitched in, and uh, everyone worked together with unity and joy, and uh, it was a great blessing to everyone who was here, and thank you so much for the very generous offering for our building fund. Uh, just by way of announcement, Sean and Maureen Taylor are moving to Panoka this weekend on Saturday, and they will need some help to move some of the bigger stuff from their apartment. So if we have, I guess, two or three uh, half-ton trucks and a little bit of muscle, uh, they would appreciate that. I think most of you know Sean and Maureen, so if you can help out, you please uh, let them know. Next uh, week is also the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we'll be having a special prayer in the morning service, but we also have scheduled a congregational prayer meeting to, uh, next Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. And our focus will be on our brothers and sisters in Christ in various parts of the world who are suffering for the faith. Obadiah. I suppose if uh, you were to be told that you are a proud person, and I mean by that an arrogant person, you would be upset and offended. We are confident that that's a label we do not deserve. If the truth were known, I think all of us struggle to some degree with pride. And we are usually blind to the reality of pride. Pride is the sin of sins. It is at the root of every other sin. So it's my prayer that the Spirit of God that we will allow the Spirit of God to examine our own hearts because it is such an insidious sin that it may work um, undetected within our hearts. I am sure that many of the problems, especially the relational problems and even some of the financial problems that some of us experience in life can be traced back to pride. Now, Obadiah is the shortest Old Testament book, 21 verses. You notice that Dan and I are sharing this study of the minor prophets. Dan had the book of Hosea, 14 chapters. He had the book of Amos, nine chapters. I uh, preached a message in Joel, three chapters. Obadiah, one chapter. And next week, Jonah, four chapters, but short chapters. And you say, what's the deal with this? Blame him. He made up the schedule, right, Dan? You made up the preaching schedule. Now, it's cast in stone, so it can't be changed. <laughs> so it's a, there's a lot of work goes into preparing one message on 14 chapters or, or nine chapters. Obadiah, the name means servant of the Lord. And uh, we don't know anything about the background of this man, there are 11 other Obadiahs in the Bible, and the scholars tell us none of them are this fellow, the prophet. Obadiah brings the message of condemnation, of judgment, to the land of Edom. Edom, back in those days, is a very small country, about 40 miles wide, 100 miles long, southeast of the Dead Sea, if you look in a map in your Bible, you'll see it. 
It stretched from the corner of the Dead Sea, the south tip of the Dead Sea, down to the Gulf of, of Aqaba. It was situated on major trade routes between Syria and Egypt. Uh, Petra was one of the uh, cities in Edom. And uh, it appears in history, in the history of Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, we know that in the exodus of the people under Moses from Egypt, they made a request of the king of Edom, Edom, can we pass through your country? Can we pass through your land? We'll stay on the main highway. We'll not take anything. If we use water, we will pay you for it. Moses basically begs because he's got two million people with him. If they can go through Edom and the king of Edom says, eh, eh, you're not coming through here. So there was a hostility right from Jacob and Esau all the way down through history. So the book of Obadiah deals with God's judgment on Edom. The verdict is found in verses 1 to 9. And uh, we read the first number of, of verses. Now, Obadiah was from Judah. He was not an Edomite. So you might, you might think that uh, Obadiah has an axe to grind, that he's speaking this judgment out of personal vengeance against the um, Edomites. There was no uh, love lost between the Israelites and the, and the uh, people of Edom. But really, uh, this is the Lord. This is the Lord speaking, and Obadiah is the mouthpiece. God is preparing various nations to attack the land of Edom. They would do it for political reasons. They don't know that God is behind rising up the nations to attack the land of Edom. And you ask, well, what is the problem? Why is God so upset with Edom? Well, look at verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You live in the cleft of the rock, in loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, we, who will bring me down to the earth? Thus, the reason for the title I've given to the message, The Perils of Pride. Edom was a very proud nation, and the root cause of their impending doom is their pride. They regarded themselves as an eagle high in the rocks, and in a few moments we'll find out what that would signify or why that uh, imagery is, is used. A sense of self-sufficiency, of security. They were unconquerable. They were invincible. No one can touch us. So said the people of Edom. That's the human assessment, how wrong they were. Verse 4, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Well, what made Edom so proud? Why were they arrogant about not being defeated, not, be brought, not being brought down? Well, her location. Uh, Petra, one of the main cities, and by the way, has anyone been to um, Petra? Have you gone to Jordan? Uh, the land of Edom is in South Jordan. Anyone been there? Because if you go on a trip to the Middle East and take a trip to Jordan, part of the trip will be to go down to Petra, which is a city hidden in the rocks, um, basically. Uh, 
I went onto the internet and I got some pictures of that. I, I can't, won't show them to you here because they're, they're too small, but uh, it'd be interesting to Google um, Petra in Jordan and see the imagery and the pictures that you come up with. So for nearly a thousand years, the stronghold of Edom was Petra, the word means rock. It was lost to the Western world, that particular location, until rediscovered by the Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Bernhard in 1812. The city is entered through a narrow gorge or canyon about a mile long. The width of this trail into Petra is about 15 to 20 feet wide with massive cliffs on each side and various um, carvings of the gods carved into the rock. Toward the end of the passage, the traveler suddenly comes to the first magnificent building, which is carved again into the face of the rock, the temple of Alcazneh, and it's about 100, rises 130 feet above the floor, the uh, canyon floor. It was said that perhaps a dozen men could protect Petra from any enemy attack because the enemy would have to come through this narrow winding uh, pathway. So they could not imagine a safer place than Petra. How wrong they were. The people there, the leaders, the military, could see the surrounding territory from their high position. What they could not see was themselves, their own hearts. And so they might, in their own thinking, soar like an eagle, and that's where the imagery comes, soar like an eagle, as eagles would soar up to the higher reaches of the cliffs, away from all harm. That's how they envisage themselves. But they could not escape from God. God is not impressed with their location. As we look in history, all nations of history have been brought down, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and even up into recent times. No empire has lasted forever. And God can do anything he wants to do with the nations of the world, and he does. And by the way, God can bring us down as well. And the only thing preventing us from being brought down by God is his grace and repentance and turning from our sin. So their location gave them a false sense of security, and they were proud about that. Uh, their, their allies, verse 7, all the men allied with you will send forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in them. So they were seeking wisdom and help from, from their alliances from other nations. And those other nations would prove untrue and would betray them. Their confidence was in man and not in God. Then they were proud of their exceptional wisdom. Will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Apparently, historically, the Edomites were known for their great learning, their intellectual prowess, but that gave them no defense against the impending judgment of God. You know, leaders of the world, all down through history and in our own time, often think that uh, they have the smarts, that they can outsmart the enemy, 
that uh, their intellectual capabilities are superior to other people in other nations, that they know the ropes, and they can devise plans, and they can come up with schemes to protect themselves. Not so. Individuals also take great pride in their learning, in their wisdom. No problem, they say, is too difficult for me to handle. I don't need God. That's deceptive. It is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. I don't think in our culture we see pride as a great problem, as a sin. Most people don't recognize it. But it's pride that keeps one from the cross of Jesus. It's pride that prevents one from seeing their need of a savior. It's pride that leads people to say, look it, I know how to handle life. I know how to deal with situations. I don't need prayer. I don't need the church. I don't need the Bible. I don't need God. The proud elevate their own desires and plans above the will of God. Often the pride, the, the, the proud person is argumentative and antagonistic and boastful and finds themselves in constant conflict with other people. In our pride, we want things to be our way because you know what? Our way is the right way. We think we are right and other people are wrong. We focus our needs on our desires and on our rights. I believe that pride is at the root of greed and people getting themselves into lifestyles that they cannot afford. Sometimes you hear it says that, well, he was a good man, but he was proud. And no one seems to be shocked by the linking, by the companionship of goodness and pride. But consider this. Would you say he was a good man, but a thief? He was a good man, but a drunkard who beat his wife. He was a good man, but dishonest. You couldn't trust him. He was a good man, but he was unfaithful in his marriage. Nor can we say that he was a good man and he was proud. They do not belong together. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3, 10 to 12, that no one possesses goodness. There is none who does good, not even one. We all have sinned. We all are great sinners. In fact, we are worse sinners than we can imagine. That's why the cross of Christ. So God's verdict stands. He sees our hearts, and Christ is our only hope. But what was the violation of Edom? We see in verses 10 through 14 that the violation of Edom was a mistreatment of Jacob or Israel. In verse 10, because of violence to your brother Jacob... You'll be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. Their specific sin was lack of brotherhood. Now, that sounds uh, inconsequential to our mind. You know, I mean, dishonesty and hatred and violence and many other sins have a oomph to them, but unbrotherliness seems so tame. But not in the eyes of God. Jerusalem was overrun by enemies. Perhaps we're looking at the date about 586 B.C. when the Babylonians were coming down and sweeping that area of the world. And Edom, who was further south, gloated and rejoiced 
over all the trouble that Jerusalem was in. They were cold-hearted. And the particular horror of Edom's actions is that they were performed against those who were related to them. Edom came out of Esau. Israel came out of Jacob. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Edom and Israel were brother nations. Edom saw his brother in serious trouble and did nothing. In fact, worse than that, they helped the enemy. They laughed at the plight of the Israelites. They mocked their predicament. They even helped the enemy to destroy them. Now the Jews, the Israelites were warned back in Deuteronomy 23, 7, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. So God tells the people of Israel, don't detest the Edomites. Now he says to Edom, don't detest the Israelites. We sometimes treat members of our own families worse than strangers. But you know, lack of love in the context of family is very, very serious in the eyes of God. James Boyce says, God has put us in families and God holds these relationships to be sacred. So if we have conflict in our families, if we have issues we have not resolved, we have not even tried to resolve them because, well, frankly, our feelings have been hurt or someone has done something unjustly to us, a family member, we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God and see if we can make it right. More details are given in verses 11 through 14. You know, the, the specific act of unbrotherliness that Edom manifested against Jacob is, we don't know exactly what it is. We know that fiction between Esau and Jacob began when uh, Jacob, by deceiving Isaac, his father, stole the birthright of Esau. And of course, Rebekah, Jacob's mother, was part of the scheme. Jacob was mommy's boy, and she helped him to deceive her husband. The the antagonism grew over the centuries, as we have mentioned. Numbers 20, 14 to 21 mentions that when Moses was leading the Exodus and he made requests to go through Edom, the leadership of Edom said, you're not coming through this land. And Moses promises and promises, we will not harm the countryside. We will not attack anybody. We just want passage. And the king of Edom and others said, no, you're not coming through here. So look at on that day you stood aloof. Verse 12, you looked, you uh, gloated over your brother. You looked down upon your brother. The, uh, the concept, the idea of, of gloating uh, can mean to look down upon with a sense of a superiority or look into, explore, to be curious which is more despicable because I think the idea here is that we can, we can look into, we can explore, we can be curious about the sins and failures of other people and gloat over them and rub their noses in their sins. But Edom showed no pretense, no indication of helping her brother. No sympathy, no compassion. 
they rejoiced. They actually were happy that Israel was in big trouble. And they, they helped the enemy when the uh, Israelites were trying to escape. The Edomites cut off their escape route. And when they caught the Israelites, they handed them back to the pursuers. So this is what is going on here. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Apart from the grace of God, we all tend to derive pleasure from another person's failure. If you ask why is this so, here's what Piper says. It soothes our inadequacies and magnifies our successes. Where the Bible says that when we find a brother in sin, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, we need to show compassion. We need to reach out. We need to help them. We need to, to be there for them and show them mercy and not gloat over their failures and never to rub their noses in their sins. Then we come to the victory. And again, we have this expression, the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord draws near on the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. We found that expression, day of the Lord, in Joel and Amos. And uh, in those books, it's very clear that, that the day of the Lord is a day of, of judgment, of darkness, of gloom, of suffering. God says judgment is near. Now, we know that the future day of the Lord has not happened yet, but I think that there is an historical fulfillment in the fact that Edom was judged shortly after these words were spoken. In fact, Edom went, has been annihilated from history almost, at least as a, as a nation. It was brought to nothing, as the text said that it would be. But the day of the Lord is near to all the nations because it is impending. It is imminent. Obadiah looks into the future and sees the great and terrible day of the Lord when all the council be Settled, but he sees the immediate day of the Lord in terms of Edom and the judgment there. What matters most is not the timing here, but the fact that proud, arrogant, violent Edom would not boast forever. She would be brought down by the wrath of God. But there would be restoration for Israel. Here is Edom in the ascendancy right now. Here is Israel under great duress and trouble because of the Babylonians coming into their territory. But the roles, the tables would be reversed in a future day where Eden would be brought to nothing and extinct. Whereas Israel, and look at verse 17, but on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, there will, those, there will be those who escape. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions, and that means they'll possess their land. I believe that the house of Israel or Jacob will actually possess their land. No, they possess that land in one sense right now, but in unbelief. The Bible predicts a, a spiritual transformation of the people of Israel. And when Jesus, of course, returns and sets up his kingdom, they will dwell in safety in their land and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. All earthly kingdoms one day will become the kingdom of God, and Jesus Christ will rule this world. Let me just briefly, in closing, mention some important lessons. The nations of the world at any given moment in history are under God's sovereign control. No exception, no exception. 
Now, we live, under, we live under a pretty good government here in Canada, but even if we were under a uh, tyrant who was persecuting Christians, as many people in other countries live in that situation, that's why we pray for the persecuted church. Even the governments that they are under, because remember, the government was hostile to the Christian faith in the beginnings of Christianity, and the Apostle Paul, of course, was killed, and many others were, were killed. The powers that be, Romans 13:1, are ordained by God. So John Piper says, no Christian should get the jitters that the world is careening out of control toward a meaningless catastrophe. They may feel like people tossed around in an old stagecoach pulled by six wild horses, but fear not. God sits serenely over our heads, and the hands that made the world holds the reins. The hands that made the world holds the reins. Pride is deceptive. We see this back in verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Pride makes us think that we are independent. We are self-sufficient. We are invulnerable. We can do it our way. And nothing's going to happen to us. That's far from the truth. Pride is a lie that I don't need God and I'm not accountable to God. When we yield to pride... Our capacity to think clearly is gone, and we act foolishly. Most of our perplexity regarding moral and theological issues is not due to the complexity of these moral and theological issues. It's due to our independence. It's due to our self-reliance. It's due to the fact that it says, I don't need to look here for wisdom to, for the answers. Yes, we do. If you are here today as a non-Christian, please recognize the futility of making your final security in anything or any place other than God himself. One day, we will stand before the court of heaven, the judge of the universe, which is Jesus Christ. Nothing in the world is more certain than that. And what will matter in that day is not our successes, not the accolades and the praise we got from people, not our accomplishments. What will matter is our relationship with God through Christ. Thirdly, God hates pride and will bring the proud person down. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud. Other translations say God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we oppose God at any point, we lose. 100% of the people who oppose God lose. Luke 16, 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Proud nations and proud individuals will reap what they sow. Notice down in verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, he says to Edom, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Reminds you of a text in the New Testament, Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. That is a spiritual law. There are no exceptions to that spiritual law. Temporary successes. Oh, yeah, we get away with dishonesty and whatever else we're doing wrong for a period of time, but only for a period of time. In the day of judgment, 
The proud will have nothing to stand on and nowhere to hide. Psalm 76, verse 7, Yet even you are to be feared, referring to God. Even you are to be feared. Who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? But of course, there are those who teach, well, God doesn't get angry. God doesn't show wrath. And I ask, what Bible are you reading? He does show wrath against those who reject the gospel, reject his son. One writer says, our self-confidence will be like a feather in a hurricane when God's wrath is revealed from heaven. But God has made a way of escape and to be saved from his wrath. When we are humbled, when we are broken because of our sin, when we flee to the cross, when we come to God for mercy, we will receive mercy. We will be forgiven. We will be redeemed. We will be set free. We will be restored. There's only one safe place. There's no condemnation to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. So let's be on constant guard against pride. Nothing will bring us more unhappiness in life than pride. So let's confess it, renounce it, Humble yourself before the cross of Christ. Make it a matter of prayer, especially if you find things not working well in your life. Maybe there's conflict, maybe on the job, maybe in the marriage, maybe at home, maybe with parents. Look at your own heart. Don't always say, they're the blame, it's their fault. No. It could be our pride, which is the root issue. If we come to the cross, we will be cleansed we will be forgiven, we will be restored, we will enter into a place of blessing, incredible blessing. We will experience the joy of the Lord right now and for all eternity. There's a lesson here in Obadiah for every one of us and I trust that uh, God will help each one of us to learn the lesson for ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't see our hearts as you see our hearts. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's what your word says. And so God, I ask you to deliver us from the deceit of our own hearts. And maybe there are issues with people and issues in other areas in our life and things are not going well. And maybe this is your severe mercy bringing consequences to bear upon us because of pride. God, we ask you to humble us. We may seek your face and seek your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.